This is another iRaw podcast. But meaning is much more than just what things may um, mean semiotically or what they convey in relationality, but meaning is something political as well. Meaning is what, what does something get to mean? What does an animal's life get to mean? Welcome back to The Animal Turn. This is season two, episode 10. In this season, we focused in on the theme of animals and experience. And in today's episode, the 10th episode, I'm going to do a graduate review. I like to end each season off with a grad review where I invite fellow graduate students in onto the show and we can unpack some of the main themes, ideas and tensions that have emerged throughout the season. Just as a way of recap, the season's nine concepts that we've discussed are phenomenology, cognitive ethology, animal culture, animal arts and aesthetics, intimate geography, political multi-species communities, shoalmates and survivors. And in today's episode, I have three PhD candidates who are joining me to help me better pick apart and understand what we've actually been doing in this season. Two of them are PhD candidates at Queen's University and Environmental Sciences Department. Siobhan Spearin works together with Dr. Alice Havorka and the Lives of Animal Research Group, focusing on how sanctuaries as sites of ecotourism contribute to the conservation and welfare of four monkey species. Joshua Jones, on the other hand, is focused in on extinction studies, and he's looking at the philosophy of ecology, biology, and biosemiotics. In particular, he explores the emptiness that resides in ecological communities after species extinction. Pablo Perez Castello also joins us. He is a PhD candidate in the School of Humanities at the Royal Holloway University of London. His thesis is in philosophy, and he focuses in on understanding the role of language and zoo democracy. So the four of us, uh, you'll hear that our conversation bounces around a fair bit, but we pick apart and we dwell on several themes that we think tie everything together. In particular, we look at relationality, imagination, and meaning. And we also touch on a variety of different tensions and gaps that the season presented. We had a really great conversation. I think we could have kept speaking for ages. And I think it just drove home for me how important it is to speak about some of these concepts with fellow graduate students or people that are also trying to unpack and understand how these concepts relate to their own work, uh, and as well as their own understanding of what animal studies is. Uh, Before we get into the show itself, uh, I just wanted to say if you, dear listener, uh, could let me know what you think of the podcast, that would be really, really great. If you could leave a review about the podcast itself or even a particular season or episode, that would be wonderful. And in particular, I'm keen to know what you think about these grad review episodes. Are they useful? Uh, How could they be improved or changed to better help you if you're, you know, if you're also on an animal studies a road and trying to learn more. Uh, so Podchaser does allow you to leave episode-specific reviews. Uh, these just help me to better understand and see what's useful, see how I can do better in future. Uh, as you know, this is all quite new. I'm almost at one year, which is really, really exciting. Uh, but more reviews would really help me to see where I can improve and where I can do better. But that's enough of that for now. I've been waffling for long enough. Let's get to it. Welcome to the show, Pablo, Siobhan, and Joshua. Thank you for having us. <laughs> thank you very much for having us. <laughs> yes, thank you. Hello. 
all three of you have really interesting PhDs that you're busy working on. And before we get into the actual review for today's show, which is generally focused on trying to unpack the main themes of season two, as well as to possibly find you know, what were some of the, the main tensions? What were the gaps in the season? Uh, but in general, just to have a fluid, open conversation about season two. So I want to first start off at the moment to find out a bit about you and why you're interested in animals and animals and experience, and possibly also a little bit about uh, what work you're working on at the moment. Josh, I believe it's your birthday. So I feel like it's the best for us to start with the birthday, birthday guy. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Sure. Um, I guess that's a good gift. So I'm a PhD candidate at uh, Queen's University currently, uh, and I'm working on, uh, or I'm studying extinction uh, and ecology. And um, a, a term that I like to use is the emptiness of extinction or the nothingness that comes after extinction events and, and how that influences ecology and how we understand the natural world. Um, and uh that's really exciting, albeit kind of scary and looks at death quite a bit, which is morbid, but I don't mind it. Um, and uh, and yeah, I'm super excited about that. And It sounds great. Um, and with you in environmental studies is Siobhan. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Oh, gosh. Okay. So I'm a PhD candidate in the same program as Josh in environmental studies at Queen's. And my supervisor is Dr. Alice Havorka, who has a research group called the Lives of Animals. So she's an animal geographer. And basically her grad students, such as myself, tend to focus on one animal and they study um, those that are geographers, the the place around it, um, the ways animals interact with society and space. And my background being a zoologist and also doing like a foray of a master's in English literature, which does apply somehow in my brain to <laughs> zoology and animal studies. Um, that's where I definitely learned and was sort of radicalized by post-humanism and post-colonialism and learning all about, um, I guess, what I now call like more than human ways of knowing and being. So that having that arts and humanities education right after a zoology degree completely reframed the way I thought about animals. And so pretty much since undergrad, I've really been wanting to focus on the welfare of wild animals. Initially, I wanted to do that in like looking at animals that are parts of research experiments um, in the wild, like field studies, how they're affected, their welfare with they're kind of like the last frontier of how do you study welfare and captivity without being in captivity. It's very hard. We don't have a lot of tools to do that. But now I've sort of migrated into sanctuaries. Um, so I look at uh, primates in sanctuaries in Costa Rica, because it's an interesting case, whereas, whereas you might have like, we know from, you know, sanctuaries are kind of in the public conscience right now, especially after Tiger King. But in Costa Rica, and a lot of Latin American countries, and maybe the global south in general, oftentimes the sanctuaries are in the natural ecosystem where these animals are found even sometimes part of their natural home ranges so it's sort of this like semi-wild semi-captive um liminal space that i find really interesting so yeah i'm fortunate enough to do uh work there in costa rica excellent thanks so much Juan. and pablo how about you yes um i'm a phd candidate in philosophy at royal holloway university of london i'm kind of the intrusive here, the one that is not from Queens. I don't know how to say. <laughs> and um, yes, um, in my case, as well, when I was an undergrad, um, I got very interested in the question of what is language. And that eventually led me to read The Animal That Therefore I Am by Derrida. And 
the human-animal distinction, the fact that there is the concept of the human, the concept of the animal. He there deconstructs uh, these concepts and tell, kind of tells us animals are real, they are vulnerable, they are different beings. And this kind of thinking shocked me completely and led me to become vegetarian uh, straight away and eventually vegan. And mm -hmm. um, since then, since I was an undergrad, I've been very interested in trying to understand, and this is what I'm doing now in my PhD, uh, the relationship or how human language influences um, or determines even our subjectivities to be anthropocentric and also in relation to to have human dominion over animals or sovereignty, as Dines Wadiwell discusses in the war against animals. So this is kind of the first half of my PhD, but then I also got into all that kind of literature by Eva Meyer and also Sudanachan and Will Kimlika. And I started to ask questions about animal language, uh, how animal language influences or, as again, is the, the role it plays uh, for the political agency of animals. And then this is very quickly leads us to questions about zoo democracy. Um, so that's as well kind of the second half of my PhD is about that. Excellent. Um, okay, so just to make sure that I was actually paying attention. Um, so Josh, you're generally focused in on animals, ecology, and kind of relationships of, of, of death um, or extinction, uh, you know, how things come to, to disappear or, or not things, animals, beings. Um, Siobhan, you're considered with the tension of animal welfare, but also how this, what you call the liminal spaces between, I guess, wild spaces and sanctuaries, uh, how that kind of work is done, how animal welfare work is done. And Pablo, uh, you are looking at uh, quite a number of things, but it seems primarily on what you said was language and how language is used and mobilized. Is this is this for language in relation to animal welfare in particular, or is there is there a particular language space that you're focused on? Not necessarily for animal welfare. I, my questions are more, um, at least the animal language part, is more located in the political turn in animal studies. So questions about how should political institutions, for instance, change if we took seriously the fact that animals are political agents. And because animal language plays an important role in this, at least that's what I argue, that the fact that animals are in language, in a way, I say that uh, humans and animals are in a shared conceptual space. So mm -hmm. that when, for example, in the Vine Sanctuary uh, uh, article that Charlotte Blatner, Sudaranson, and Ryan Wilcox wrote, um, they, they see a cow that wants to go to the hill that it actually came up in the podcast. I say, look, there's a certain conceptual space in which this cow is perceiving the fence as an object that it has the meaning of I cannot go to the hill. It prevents me from accessing through that hill. And if we think of the cow in that way, then very quickly we understand that this is a political agency agent that is saying to us, I want to go to the hill. And mm -hmm. humans and animals, we are in that certain conceptual space. That sort of more or less what I'm trying to do in that. And then then we have to think about zoopolis, uh, other type of questions on citizenship and a lot of other things. I mean, there's a lot there. But yeah, I hope it makes more sense maybe. Huh? It, it does. So so you're considered, uh, and, and I think, I mean, there were a number of episodes in today's, uh, in, in the season's focus that I think overlap with some of what you're talking about here, some of the work of Lauren Corman, uh, the work of Catherine Gillespie, certainly of, of Sue Donaldson and uh, Patrice Jones. So I, yes, like how, how do we think 
about how animals communicate what they would like, not just uh, in, term, in terms of the experiences that they would like in the world. So what do you guys think when you heard of the, the theme animals and experience? What was your, when you think animals and experience, what do you, what do you think? <laughs> what do you think about when you think about the word experience? Umwelt. Um, <laughs> jump in. That's, I'm, uh, it was, I guess, fitting in a way or not fitting. Maybe that's not the right word, but that the first episode would be on. And now let's say this correctly. Phenomenology. <laughs> um, because that's, a, that's what I think about. I think of, uh, I think of uh, phenomenological experience. Um, and particularly, I, I think of, and I think that this came up uh, throughout the season and in that first episode as well, the barriers to accessing experience, not only for other animals, but uh, for everyone. We have, you know, entire access to only our own private inner experience. So when I think of experience, I think of something that is largely unknowable, but so exciting and interesting. And uh, really what I think propels all of critical animal studies, I, I would say, I don't know, but um, interest in, in experience, right? How about you guys? What, what do you think? So I also, I, I tend to agree with Josh. I, I find experience infinitely fascinating. And I think that this season, the first season on law seemed quite coherent. Uh, the, 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 the topics seemed to really hang together quite tightly. Whereas this, it was a lot broader, a lot more um, theoretically, I felt thorny and complicated. So, so how about you, Siobhan, when you, when you think through experience, what are you, what are you thinking of? I'm, I feel like I'm in this a bit of a paradox where the more I learn about animals, the less I feel like I know, which is like, you know, at, w growing up wanting to be a zoologist, I thought, oh, well, that's a person who has like an encyclopedic knowledge of, of animals. And these are the facts about them. And, you know, having a zoological education, you start to see how many misconceptions there are about animals, even just biologically or in, in an evolutionary ecological level. And then following that with an education in animal studies and posthumanism, I'm like, wow, okay, what do I know about animals? Like I find myself afraid sometimes to say, you know, so when I work in sanctuaries, tourists come up to me all the time and ask me questions and I'm constantly like second guessing myself. And one of the biggest um, aha moments I had was I read a book called The Complete Capuchin, which is like all the knowledge you need on capuchin species. And they're my main focal animal in Costa Rica, but they, they weren't when I was starting my field season. I went through an entire field season with the misconceptions that monkeys learn through mimicry. And at least capuchin monkeys don't. They just learn that, for example, if you show a capuchin monkey successfully using a stick to push a piece of like food through a tube, a naive monkey could be watching that happen 50 times. And then you give him the stick and he might not know what to do with it. He'll hold it because he knows that the stick was important to the to the desired outcome of having a treat or a pleasurable experience, but he won't actually he won't necessarily understand the mechanism. So that maxim mm -hmm. of monkey see monkey do, which like pervades so much of animal behavior and so much of what the public knows about animals and animal nature is like not necessarily true. And it starts to distort this sort of idea that I think uh, Jeffrey Bussolini talked about this, this like hegemonic notion of animals as sort of like um, driven by instinct and they're like almost like glorified automata, more complex automata will allow them now in our common discourse. Oh, maybe they can create art. Maybe they can create communities. Now I'm going on a rant, but, <laughs> but, 
But that's one of the things I found is like, the more I know about them, the less I feel sure to claim knowledge of because they're, I don't even know if we have the tools as researchers or humans um, to even be made aware of, for example, all the ways in which animals that can't vocalize how we would vocalize communicate with us. How do we know that certain animal species and phylums aren't don't have these complex social and, and communicative lives. So anyway, I'll leave it I'll leave it at that. What's all around you, almost everywhere you look, and makes your life better? Birds. Learn all about these beautiful creatures in this wonderful new podcast called Birds of a Feather Talk Together. Two experts guide two newbies on their journey to learn more. Mallard ducks, ivory-billed woodpeckers, Hawaiian honeycreepers, blue jays, cardinals, sandhill cranes, and more. Each week we discuss a different bird and walk away with a better understanding of the birds all around us. Oh, and we have a ton of fun doing it. Listen now. You're going to like learning about these birds. I guarantee it. No, I think that's so important. Uh, and, and again... I think Mark Beckoff, for me, just drove this home. He had this clarity of thought uh, with speaking that was refreshing in a way, you know, where I I second guess everything I think I know. Um, and, and I think all three of you actually have far more experience with animals, animal studies, environmental sciences, zoology, all of that than, than I do. I'm, I'm brand new, like two years into this world. Um, and yeah, like you, I feel like the more I get to know, the more variety I see. And I just think, oh. And it is, it's kind of hard to not be daunted by that, to think that there's so much, I'll never know enough, I'm always just going to be a dum-dum. Um, and I think Lauren Coleman also pointed a bit to this, to say that, you know, as grad students in particular, to not be daunted by how much there is, but to rather see the magic of it, to rather to rather be like energized by how exciting that is. And even what you just spoke about there with Monkey See, Monkey Do, like what a, you're a really good communicator. You just, you you, you made that clear um but yeah kind of dealing with that tension of of the more you learn the more you realize just how partial and 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 yeah I, I definitely relate Pablo how about you when you think about experience what are you what are you grappling with or thinking about I I also felt or it came to mind the phenomenological aspect of experience and also it's very connected to this embodiment the fact that experience happens always by being within our bodies, in our bodies. And it came to mind as well what you mentioned in part, uh, but well, perhaps other aspects of what Lauren Corman was discussing about um, intersubjectivity, the idea that our experiences, and perhaps that's why in part this season has been, I was thinking of the word messy, uh, that is very, it has, it's very associated with Donna Haraway that uh, thinks about the fact that our existence is always entangled with others, that we are born and we are already, and when I say we, I mean human and non-human animals, um, we are already have mothers, uh, we are already perhaps in a herd of animals. Um, so we are born and we are already that, entangled, relational, uh, and experiencing the world and life in that form and in that way, um, in our bodies, and that embodied existence is relational. So that's sort of things is what came to my mind. And I thought as well, it was really present in many episodes. It was one of the things that I highlighted relationality in Lauren Corman, Mark Beckoff, of, of course, Jonathan Balcom as well with the 
souls and the fees, obviously, there. Uh, and Sudarshan, as well, was talking about relational autonomy, uh, the dependence, as well, uh, that comes from more critical disability studies. Um, so, yes, lots of th those kind of other things that came to mind. I didn't even write down the word relationality, but you're right. So, so perhaps we can we can dwell with this a little bit. So, relationality itself is something that cut across, I think, several episodes, and certainly entanglements. And how how can we think about the complicated ways in which humans and animals experiences, and and animals and animals, right? To so not always just put humans in that picture, but animals. You know, Jonathan Balcom spoke about the the grouper and the eel. You know, they've got an entanglement and a relationship that exists beyond us. And and I, I find myself continually wanting to insert humans into that relationship. Uh, but what do you guys think when, when you're thinking through, what are, what are some of the core lessons here that we could take from season two when thinking about entanglements and relationality? If I can just jump in, I don't want it to become an, an ordered, uh, you know, uh, sequence of speaking, but uh, I think I had a, I have a lot to say on this. Um, I think, um, it wasn't explicitly said necessarily in this season, but that um, the themes of relationality and intersubjectivity, and um, I, I like to think with Nasi and his being with, um, that being is always already a being with, and that there is no being in isolation. Um, that uh, those recurring themes or, or motifs, I guess, throughout the season really point to um, ecology in a broad sense, not necessarily just a natural science sense, but the ecologies of relation uh, that we are, and we in the in the most plural sense, um, animals, we are all made up of the relations that we hold. Uh, so if we think of the grouper and the, or, or, or any of the interactions between animals and animals, animals and humans, that those relations make us what we are or who we are. Um, and that when we think about relationality in that way, as this constitutive uh, or constitutive um, um, tethering, uh, it really changes the way that we think about really the entire world. That even the space that I'm sitting in now, or that I'm holding into relation even with inanimate, inanimate objects, excuse me, uh, makes me who I am. Um, and uh, that's that's profound, I think. Um, if I may, maybe. Uh, as well to kind of break the order, <laughs> um, because I think uh, Bussolini, Jeffrey Bussolini said something that because in my PhD I do a lot of work with Martin Heidegger, and it's quite related to what uh, Josh was saying because I wrote here a, a quote that I like of what he said that he said um, we are already in the world we are always already intersubjective and that's a Heideggerian language which. Uh, tries to kind of say, look, um, we tend to think of the mind and the body as two separate things, and therefore we can think of the world with our heads that is separated from it. Similarly, we can think of relationships as there is here this individual subject, Pablo or Claudia or whoever, and then we can say, oh, look, now I'm relating to Claudia and to Shovan and so on in this kind of very detached way. So there's the individual and then two individuals relationship. But the idea of we are, are always already intersubjective, I think is trying to point out that this idea that when we are born, when I don't know, when a deer is born and fawn, they are already with the mom from that very moment. And even when we're in the belly of our mom, say, we are already there related and entangled. So it's kind of to kind of, and I think Lauren Corman insisted on this in multiple occasions. She was trying to say we need to sort of break the idea or 
this kind of change our paradigm, how we think about relationality and subjectivity, even when it is individual subjectivity. Because I do think there's such a thing as individual subjectivity to a certain extent, because obviously it's not all relational and then, but it's sort of trying to think, okay, this individual subjectivity, this I of mine, as it were, it's relational already. It's, it cannot be detached from that relationship. I think Lauren Corman is what she was trying to push forth as well with Donna Haraway, that she always insists on this a lot. Um, so I, if I had to get, get something about relationships, um, that's what I would get from this season. And I think it's really present as well in the ethologist, uh, well, Jonathan Balcom and uh, Mark Beckoff. If one reads their work and what some of the things they were saying, you, know, you get that sense as well, I believe. Yeah, I think that's that's super important. And something I've struggled a lot with is this this tension. I mean, you would have heard I asked it several times throughout the season is the, the tension between an individual and an ecology. How do you take seriously an ecology? Um, you know, and, and, and the questions of conservation then start to come up here too. Uh, a lot of the discourse and the language around protecting the world is around conservation, but a lot of that conversation, of course, is happening at a genetic level, uh, which seems to kind of, completely disavow the experiences of individuals, uh, which I think, you know, Catherine Gillespie works, her work is incredible in highlighting how important an individual's life is, right? Like an individual, yes, you're born to a particular mom, but your stories and your set of embedded experiences unravel in a way that's your story, right? And that's a unique individual personal story. Um, but somehow those stories or those cultures, uh, they get lost in the, the the language of instinct and the language of of uh, the language of instincts, the language of of ecology, perhaps. Uh, and correct me here if I'm wrong, um, uh, Siobhan and Josh. But it just seems to me that when we have these conversations about genetics, some of these experiences of, of animals are actually lost. That that's not the that's not the level that's really being spoken about. We we speak about conserving wildlife. We speak about conserving. Um, just the incredible variety of animals, but we're not really talking about the, the experiences the animals themselves are having. So what are we actually talking about when we're talking about conservation? Hmm. I can, um, okay, so I'm not half the philosopher these gentlemen are. Um, so I'm going to ground it in sort of more so anecdotes and my understanding of relationality. Um I thought Mark Beckoff's podcast really spoke to me, not just because you gave me a shout out at the beginning of it, uh, which like fully made me blush all shades of red. I'm like, he's heard my name. Oh, can I start my email to him? Uh, I, I really appreciated his kind of comment that it's like, if you don't, if you think your dog doesn't have a personality or doesn't seek pleasure and run from out of fear, then I feel bad for your dog. And that I'm like, that's just something I'm going to keep in my back pocket if I ever <laughs> unfortunately face someone who thinks that animals are just sort of this like glorified automata and when I first um so I should say I had the I've challenged myself um to study the one sort of animal that I didn't study in zoology which was primates so aside from like a two-week primatology field course I did which was in Costa Rica way back in undergrad which is how I sort of ended up coming around to it like six seven years later um, I thought there's no way as a, a wanton field researcher, I said, there's no way I can look up in the trees with binoculars, look at 30 individual monkeys and know who is who. 
And I know now there's techniques for that. But even when I moved to the sanctuary setting, my first site had five capuchin monkeys and 20 other species, but the five capuchins were who I was focused on. And I could barely tell any of them apart unless they had like a crazy scar or something funny. And after watching them for 40 hours, I was like, oh, how did I ever think they were not individuals? And now I see in my own cat's behavior, or I see other animals now in Canada that I'm like, oh, that reminds me of this monkey. Oh, she's sneaky like this one. And their personalities were so distinctive. I couldn't believe that there was a time I couldn't tell them apart. And I think to go back, circling back to relationality, I find that at least with sanctuary work, and I think probably a lot of on the ground conservation work in general, there's so much emotion tied into it that I found like I was like constantly on the edge of some sort of like emotional breakdown when I was there, especially when I had enough time to think, which isn't always healthy to do for you as a field researcher, time to reflect. And there were moments where I'm like, is this like a, this, is this like an asylum? Is it like a prison? Like, what's the metaphor? Is this a hospice? So hospice is what I go with, which is um, Juno Peranius, who's an anthropologist. Um, She tends to use hospice to describe sanctuaries, which I think is the best word for it, because a lot of analogous human captivity situations sound like they're there as a punishment like a prison is not is a negative way to connote something that is an ngo that is trying and is the last real chance for animals to make it back into the wild or live a life um in relatively the same natural environment in the same sorts of ecosystems so they are in enclosures um and like not to get too far off into an anecdote but um this summer, I had this weird experience where a woman thought that a sanctuary monkey that I had had a relationship with this summer, that sounds weird, <laughs> that I, had, it's tr- like, you know, but it's true, like, I felt like was my friend, this spider monkey named, uh, I'll use the pseudonym Hadini, which is a whole other thing that I have to use pseudonyms for sanctuary animals, because they're such individuals, and my uh, places are anonymous. She contacted me, and it was a woman in like Texas saying that that was the monkey that was taken for her. And she sent me like 10,000 photos of her son swimming with him in her pool saying like, can you help me get him back? And at first I was like revolted. Cause I was like, this is the real life tiger King. They had this poor monkey in this like Texas plantation house. And then I felt like immensely sad and my emotions were a total mess. And I thought she still loved this animal. She said she raised it like a son. Obviously everything I know about animals goes against keeping especially a primate like a spider monkey in captivity but it it's sort of like shook me to my core that eight years later she's still trying to find him and even though obviously he was like rightfully seized and is in a sanctuary and is not the monkey that I know um just is both is just a young male spider monkey um it really really shook me so those are kind of my anecdotes to get into the the emotional heaviness of relationality especially when you're working with them one-on-one mm-hmm. I think you bring up a couple of interesting points there. So one, when you, you mentioned the individuals and how you had 40 individuals. And, and I mean, you see, you see similar types of thinking through racist discourse too, to be honest, uh, where, where people will go into a country uh, with a set of people who they don't know or a set of races that they are unfamiliar with and be like, you know, they'll conflate different countries with one another. You know, what's the difference between, you know, China, South Korea, and Japan? And that's a, a very problematic question. Um, and and it's fueled with a whole bunch of racist undertones. But then once you become more familiar and you actually learn and you do your research, you start to realize that you were just being ignorant. 
And I think Mark Beckoff also mentioned this, that he always makes his students, when they are interested in anyone, uh, if you are, if you don't know, don't presume to know, sit and observe, um, watch and watch what they're doing and don't take notes, don't do anything and their behavior will start to tell you something. So that, that for me, really, we already stuck out. So if we start to think about like how racism operates, uh, is this a form of how speciesism, spe- still can't say it, um, speciesism operates in, in how we, we create this massifying of animals. This was, this for me was the uh, one of the major theme, or or what I latched onto throughout the entire season. Um, and I should say, uh, I do I do want to say quickly something to the conservation and, and ecology uh, uh, sort of question or discussion point mm-hmm. that you brought up. Um, and uh, I can ground what I'm talking in or what I'm talking about in in my own. So my real um, vent initial venture or foray even into uh, animal studies was uh, my master's degree, um, which I, uh, in which I surveyed highways for roadkill um, in order to, uh, to map where animals were dying in, in, in high densities or, or in high concentrations. Um, and it is, um, it, it it didn't sit or or upon reflection later on it, it felt strange to me that i was not doing something to prevent the animals being killed presently but that i was um finding their dead bodies in order to to preserve some of their kin in the future um and that is why i turned to philosophy in order to begin to try and answer some of these questions. <laughs> and so a part of what I'm trying to do, and I won't give a full sort of layout of, of, of my project, but I, I really, I would like to move forward to rethinking ecology, not as um, made up of substitutable, or as you said there just now, Claudia, as sort of uh, these uh, mass or monolithic or, 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 or totalized um, um, homogenies of beings but that species are made up of individuals and that ecologies are made up of individuals and 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 some are similar and some are very different um and that if we begin to rethink ecology with that in mind and various other things how does that change the way that we might approach conservation or 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 whatever else um but i i the one of the major themes just going back to to something said more recently um it came up with zipporah weisberg it came up with laura corman um is this um, idea of of a totalized knowledge or, or totalizing knowledge or what something is or what something means. Um, and for me, that's a very colonial exercise. Um, it's also a very capitalist exercise, I think. I mean, as, uh, as um, <clears throat> excuse me, Patrice Jones said, <laughs> all of these intersect, right? You know, racism and speciesism and, and all sorts of violence and oppression, they all intersect. They're, they're not isolated, which, of course, Everything's relational, of course. Um, but um, sorry, so this this movement towards either totalizing knowledge or that, yeah, everything's, oh, that's the exact same. Um, something I'd like to, uh, I'm trying to work against in my own work, or, or not work against, but but rethink is the niche, right? A species niche, that it's this sort of like volume, a placeholder for a species functionality in an ecology. Is that really what it is? Are there vacant niches that sit unactualized waiting for species to come and take, you know what I mean? Or is it mm-hmm. something more, is it something more emergent? Is it something more, uh, anyway, sorry, I'm, I'm going off on my own work here. But yeah, that, that's, that's something that uh, I think um, 
I, I think about a lot for animal studies is uh, how to walk this tension uh, between mm. the the specificity of the individual experience and then, uh, you know, not, like I say, a totalizing into some homogeny. So you speak there about the, the, the specificity of the individual. So the main theme that we're talking about here that's come up from season two, or one of them is relationality but with that relationality is a kind of tension between individual and and species but also individual and and I guess the structures in which these individuals exist whether it's a structure of conservation or a structure of wildlife devastation um but that these experiences are and can be quite different but that the relationships can also be quite different too so as Siobhan was pointing me to the capuchin monkey um I think that this challenges some of our predetermined roles about which animals belong in which experiences right mm -hmm. so a dog belongs in a swimming pool swimming next to someone and when someone loses their dog or that relationship we understand that devastation yet if that relationship has been formed with a an animal that's been categorized as a wild animal, we problematize that relationship in a very different way. Um, and this is not to say that one way is right or wrong, but to think about how these predetermined categories for groups of animals operate. So in this bigger theme of relationality, we've got tensions between individuals, we've got tensions between roles um, and the kinds of structures that exist, such as conservation, but also capitalism, wildlife destruction. Uh, Pablo, I know you wanted to contribute to this this point here too. Yes, um, I will try as well because I think what I was thinking before kind of relates to what you are saying uh, because we are using relation a lot. But I, I I will see if I can make the connection. So what I was thinking when you were talking before was the native feral or introduced species divide, and uh, that this is a race it's racial the racial grammar rather of native versus feral. Um, that is something that uh, Afghan Silko uh, discussed about as well, how all these intersections uh, are occurring and also how they constitute each other. It is a language that I really like by Kledge and Kim, and I completely agree with it, that racism, speciesism, ableism, they are constituting each other. They are not only kind of points that then intersect somewhere, but that they kind of form each other as it were. I think that's a very impor important insight by these authors that I, I'm, I really like it. And something that I wanted to mention that for me was, I don't know if for now it was more attention or, and I think you kind of pointed it out in the podcast with Mark Beckoff as well. So the idea that watching animals is very important, which I think it is. But I also feel uncomfortable sometimes that in animal studies, there is a kind of insistence that seeing is very important, seeing is very important. And I also try to think, we need to deconstruct what seeing is. Because one of the things that Rida said that I think is really important in his work was that philosophers, and he really meant humans, I believe, in, to some extent, we have never seen animals. Uh, we look at them, but we don't really see them. Because if one thinks about it, like, let's think about the cart, right? Like, he saw animals that were being dissected, and he was like, they are like watches or clocks. And he did see them or he looked at them, let's say. But he was not really, he was not reciprocating who those beings are. He was not interpolated by those beings. And I think this happens a lot today. How many people see animals killed in, with roadkills? There are so many, and we see them, or at least we look at them or something. But there is a, something about, and lots of people in conservation spend so much time with animals, and they support killing animals in mass. So then the question is, what does it mean to see another being? What do we need to do? 
for that to really be able to relate to that being as an individual, as a relational being that has a family, feelings, mm. and so on, that complexity. How can we do that? I think that's really important. Yeah, um, I think that's a, a super important point. And it's it's actually something that came up in season one with Siobhan O'Sullivan, where we spoke mm. about seeing and, and what the, you know, would, what's that? That axiom where if they build glass houses, if factory farms and glass houses, yes, everyone yes. would be a vegan, right? yes, or yes. A, a vegetarian. But I think we we know enough now that seeing is not necessarily what leads to this kind of change. Mm. That there's a lot we're able to hold several beliefs in, in suspension at the same time, and this hints at another big theme I feel that came up in season two, which is the theme of imagination. So in thinking about experience. So yes, experience our experiences, our experiences with animals are relational. Animals' variety of experiences are relational, whether it's uh, you know, the animals who are hit on roads, animals on plates, animals in sanctuaries or in swimming pools, it's all or in mothers' wombs. It's relational, certainly. But as Josh hinted at at the beginning of the show, one big thing to come up is also accessibility to these experiences. How do we stop making humans the center of understanding animals' experiences? And what role does imagination play in this? And, and for me, this was a really big theme in season two. Josh? This, yes. Um, I'll just show for the, uh, I don't know if you can see it, but I wrote imagination in big, big capital letters on the page. Um, it's partly because I, I, I'm thinking about it a lot in my work and partly because, yes, um, in, in the limits or, or, yeah, the limits of our understanding or our, um, our own experience or our uh, ability to share our experience, that is where imagination is, is fundamental and integral. Um, and, uh, I, I do, um, aver um, I, do some work on ethics, I guess you could say. I don't know how to phrase that. And uh, something that I've been thinking about of uh, thinking about a lot lately is an imaginative ethics, um, which builds on a lot. But uh, going back to the season, um, yes, uh, imagination is 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 uh, is is really the only uh, the only way that I can see um, cognitive ethology, uh, any sort of phenomenological approach to to animals. It's the only way that it can. Uh, that, that it can take place if that makes sense. Um, so I, I, I don't know if I have much more to say. I was just so excited that it got brought up. <laughs> no, I, I certainly think uh, that imagination is central to this. Ashvan, what are your thoughts? So I was going to say that my, throughout this season, what clued in for me, which I now realize is linked to imagination was storytelling. I found that was like a major theme of this season, um, both in that, a lot of obviously, you know, having your guests here, they're telling stories about how their first relations with animals and how they've like nurtured and constituted mm -hmm. these relationships throughout their lives with animals. Um, and also, especially in the last episode with Patrice Jones, like the, the experience of listening to the stories um, creates like an embodied, at least for me, an embodied sense as close to what I can experience of the animal's own, you know, umwelt, inner world, what have you. Um, and I find from a practical conservation sense that there's actually a tension within, I, I don't want to, again, like focus too much my own work, but I find this tension sometimes where now I'm trying to, now that I've turned to the animal social sciences, I'm like, oh, maybe responsible anthropomorphism um, is sort of the way to go. Whereas in zoology, I was always told, like, you have to be objective. You can't anthropomorphize, mainly because mm -hmm. we don't want to assume 
certain things of the animal. So it was more of like a precautionary thing than it was any sort of like trying to be a totalizing instruction. It was more like go with wonder and curiosity and don't just assume an animal is going to behave or think the same way we do. But now invoking responsible anthropomorphism, oftentimes, actually what Mark Beckoff was talking about, like I refer to the monkeys as like men and women sometimes by accident. I'm like, oh, we got like three men two women or like I'll say like oh the girls are over there because it's like all female monkeys in one cage or like I use human signifiers to describe them and it's not something I did intentionally even though it's probably it's probably like an a resistance somehow that I was doing inherently to the way that you know a resistance to the sort of biological ethology that I was trying to do at points in my research but I found it seems super unprofessional to sanctuary staff and to tourists. And I remember one of my like mm-hmm. sort of, so I partner with sanctuaries and they're like my main, they're how I get into the research is I work from the ground up with sanctuaries. And so sometimes I'll do like stuff that they would give to a volunteer. And I was writing a storybook of animals there. And they were like, um, some other volunteers were saying like, you're humanizing the animals too much. Aren't we just supposed to like list the facts about them? And I was just Mm. confused because one of the main ambassadors of this sanctuary who actually just passed away a month ago, Boosh, is a scarlet macaw who was, I think, probably fed with a syringe or something as a baby in captivity. And so his beak is like malformed now and he can't chew without like having his food processed. And I'm like, how am I going to represent his story in life without talking about, you know, the trauma he went through as a as an individual um, Mm. in the wildlife trade, how he was rescued, how now he's sort of you could even bring like disability liberation into this. He's in functionally disabled in the sense of like the way his beak is and his feeding apparatus. I think this is super important um, because storytelling is almost hinting a bit at at the method through which we can think about imagination. And then again, with, with, with with what Pablo was saying here about seeing. So to see is not as necessarily, and this is, there are many ways to see. We can both be in the same room, seeing exactly the same thing, but interpret it completely differently depending on what our life uh, circumstances are and situations are. Um, so there was a lot of talk about trying to have a responsible imagination, an ethic that's trying to center the animals, um, you know, something that is looking at animals' experiences from below. There's a lot of, you know, talking about animals' experiences from below. And I do think that storytelling was implicit throughout the season. I think about, you know, Carl Safina and Jonathan Balcom and Catherine Gillespie are all really sophisticated storytellers that are able to meld together both scientific knowledge and storytelling. They they somehow bring forward this idea of static scientific facts. I think it what work does that do for for animals in telling their experiences? Um uh, you know, what, what would it sound like if we spoke about humans in, in this kind of way without any sort of contextual experience or life life story or biography? Um, yeah, it's just, it, it is hard to think of how to imagine the stuff. Um, I mean, I have no, I have no answers here, <laughs> but it certainly was a theme. Hearing you, I was just thinking that, um, because I wrote here that our imagination should be grounded and embodied and this kind of encountering animals awakens our imagination. And then I just think you, you would mention Catherine Gillespie, Mark Beckhoff, and Jonathan Balcom. And all of them <laughs> encounter animals in their work. It's so mm-hmm. central to their work to actually witness, um, just be with them as well. Um, and that it is from that position of encounter 
that they kind of construct these stories uh, mm. and try to let them speak as it were. Um, and I, I just, I really do think that that type of ethological work that then is kind of narrated um, through people like Catherine Gillespie, that is exceptional writer. Um, I just think it's very important. I, I, I do think though, however, because what does this mean then? There are some people who are trying to think through animals and animals' experiences who don't have access to animals. And should we have access to and observe all animals, right? There's an ethical question here too. So can we not tell the experiences? Look at the amount, number of fish whose stories are not told because they're uninteresting or they're not charismatic mm. or, or we think they're too different from us, as as, as uh, Jonathan Balkan pointed out. So some stories end up getting told constantly whereas you know other stories aren't but maybe that's not what you're getting at here Pablo well I mean no but just about that I think that while I agree with you and I feel I think Josh was mentioning at the beginning that experience was about unknowability what we cannot know about which I, I am very sympathetic to it but I also think that it is really important to try to relate to other animals because if we really take seriously the idea that animals are political agents and that we should try to build a more just political order, a multi-species political order in which humans and animals coexist and participate politically. If that's something that one said, oh, this is important, then we really need to understand who animals are um, and to try to let them speak. And how do we do that? It's a very difficult question. And here is where I was trying to get at perhaps that encountering animals and trying to not speak for them, but rather let them speak in some form, in some way, as difficult as that is, because it's really difficult. And there are many questions that at least I don't have an answer for. I need to think about a lot of these things. Um, but I think it's important. That doesn't mean that we should then just go to the middle of the Amazon and this kind of distort what the relationships that there are there. But mm. um, especially in, say, the sanctuaries or uh, with domesticated animals in cities and so on, I think at least there is other spaces that are important that these voices uh, have a space and that they say policy. I, I really think this is really important. And for that, we need to do that type of work as well. Um, so, yeah. Great. So, so, so far, we've, we've looked at um, two two main themes. We've looked at relationality and we've looked at kind of um, the role of imagination and storytelling that both of these came up. But I do think, uh, so I wrote down several other uh, themes and I, obviously I don't think we're going to get to all of them. Like I said, I don't, a, a lot of stuff came up. I think we have also touched on here in our conversation about some of the, the tension between uh, analytical levels, looking at, uh, you know, ecologies versus individuals. Another theme for me that seemed to come up in several interviews uh, was one language, which uh, Siobhan spoke about here, like language of relations, but also how we need to acknowledge the variety of experiences that animals have, that sometimes the discourse of animals' experiences is very much centered on suffering and competition. Uh, and this for me was something that really to, to diversify our imagination, right? To, to think through the diversity of experiences animals could have. What other themes did you guys possibly find? So these are some of the main themes that, that, that I had emerging for me. I think coming out of the, those, that theme you mentioned, um, I see entangled also um, 
what Patrice Jones talked about of like survivor, animal survivors, and how powerful that language can be as opposed to saying victims. Mm -hmm. And obviously like victim based language can be super effective and deployed really well. Um, And I I think it's a case by case sort of basis, but I hadn't really thought of calling animals, especially in sanctuaries where I work, where all the animals there are rescued from either captivity or like road collisions, electrocution, conflict with humans, um, because they're just living in essentially hybrid communities. There's very few primary rainforests left um, where they live in like some form of isolation from humans. Um, Yeah, I, I think thinking of them as survivors in creating a new sort of Josh knows this guy. And actually I've talked to you about this too, Claudia. Like, I'm like, what is a sanctuary monkey in the context of my work? Is it a victim? Is it a, is it a survivor? Is it still a wild monkey? Is it, it's not fully captive. It's not fully wild. It's, you know, the ones that have to stay there for life because they're too disabled to be released. They're both victims and survivors. I don't know. I'm just kind of thinking through this idea of, how best, I guess in a practical sense, how best to deploy language around this sort of conservation work um, that gets the sorts of resources and attention and I guess really the embodied experiences we want tourists and advocates to have towards these animals. So that's sort of, that wasn't even really a point that was just kind of going off of what you were saying there. Yeah, and if I can actually, I'll jump in and build off that. Um, A theme that uh it, it it was it didn't it didn't come up explicitly necessarily but i think it was pervasive throughout the entire season all nine episodes um and it has to do with relation relationality and uh, and some of the other themes that we've been speaking about already and that's meaning um yeah. it did come up in uh episode one with zipporah weisberg um when speaking about um uh Bonukshul and the Umwelt and phenomenology is that we're co-creators of meaning and that um, these relations, how I think of relations is shared meaning, right? That's how we're in relation with one another. Uh, what's, a, what's a non-meaningful relationship look like? I, I don't think that exists, but maybe that's just me. I don't know. I'm open to being wrong. So, but meaning is much more than just what things uh, may um, mean semiotically or um, uh, what they convey in relationality, but meaning is something political as well. Meaning is what what does something get to mean? What does an animal's life get to mean? Is it just a chicken in or no? Sorry, I caught myself because I didn't want it to come across as though I was suggesting this. But you know, is is a chicken's life just something in a factory farm? Uh, is it is it just meat? Is it what 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 do things, what do people, uh, beings, entities, people get to mean? Um, and, and this goes exactly with the uh, the discussion of, of all the different modes of oppression and violence that we've been speaking about or gestured towards colonialism, capitalism, speciesism, racism, uh, all the various. Um, and yeah, so that, 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 uh, that came up for me as well. Meaning is super important. Not only the meaning that we find ourselves imbued with and creating but also the the political exercises of meaning what does yeah. um uh because i i think that that is super very important that we might not pay attention towards uh, as much as we should for me the story that drive that drives home that point best is the cow with 
1389 that Catherine Gillespie speaks about, you know, a cow who collapses, who people wouldn't give $35 for. And and the value, and this this kind of points to, again, systems of oppression, which were spoken about in every single episode, um, but, you know, and, and I think points to maybe one of the gaps in the season where there is maybe a need to unpack some of the concepts that help us to better understand these structures of oppression. But mm-hmm. how does a life and the meaning and the value of a life come become commodified in that way? It just become a matter of numbers, right? A, a life is $35. It just seems, it seems, um, crazy and 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 again for me a word i often use is, is subversion you know how do we how do we subvert and and it's through catching ourselves with slippages where we call some animals it or we call um you know we speak about instinct to kind of just catch ourselves and and use some of the tools i think that have come up in the season like imagination um what could what else could it be to ask the other question which is a as a feminist ad, like adage you know um I mean, it's it's used differently to how I'm using it here, but to ask a different question, if the answer to an animal's experience seems simple, oh, they're just fish, like you say, Josh, or oh, they're just instincts or, you know, just animals, that, that reduction of the word just to kind of catch ourselves and say, what uh, what else could be going on here? To use um, what Sapporo spoke about, the the, the magic, to, to think about the magic, or, or Patrice, to think about the enchantedness of the world. Pablo? Yes, it's just one of my themes that I was surprised because I I heard all the season as the episodes came, but then I also listened to it over the weekend. I said, this weekend is for the animal term, term <laughs> season two, and just listen to all of them. And I wrote the themes I thought um, were kind of transversal or were very present in all the episodes. And one of them that I didn't catch it initially was beauty. That is mm. very related to what they are saying now with enchantment and the magic of life. A sense of awe. It was in Zipporah Weisberg uh, talk, in Beck, Mark Beck of Balcom uh, as well, in Catherine Gillespie, Bussolini. Like in so many episodes, the topic of beauty and a sense of awe, we need to kind of rekindle our sense of awe with nature, animals, and a sense of that perhaps this connects as well with the idea of imagination, an idea of the idea of curiosity and to be open, to be surprised. And mm-hmm. there is not that, that just, this being is just instinct, say. This being is a, an individual that can surprise us and be curious about that in a very healthy way. I don't mean it in a kind of scientific way, doing research with them or anything like that. And phenomen- phenomenological sense, again, with the word phenomenology, that was said as well. Yeah. So I, I think that beauty was much more present than I init- initially thought of when, when I heard it, like all the season these last months. And over the weekend, I was like, wow, this is just everywhere. Uh, mm. and, and, and yeah, it's beautiful <laughs> that it is so present. Siobhan? Yeah, just going off of what uh, Pablo was saying, I, I'm, I just had this thought, so it's not fully formed yet, but I wonder whether it seems to me that imagination, the project of imagining animal worlds, imagining intersubjectivity, interspecies communities seems to be in direct opposition to the reductivist tendencies of these forms of oppression, right? In general, racism, sexism, ableism, what have you, speciesism, they operate from what I can see on a reducted, on a reducted, (laughs) this is a new phenomenology, on a reductivist operation in order, you know, when you reduce agency effectively, you reduce the ability that people will, that the 
resistance that Patrice Jones talks about. Animals are always resisting. And I like fully, I'm on board with that. When you reduce an animal um, or a species, or you reduce an individual via only talking about its species or population, you start to lose um, the ability to see those like little acts of rebellion, of resistance, of agency um, that I think are the the entry point for us to imagine the animal experience. Mm-hmm. Um, like monkeys in the sanctuaries I was looking at were constantly like, why even have an enclosure? They're constantly escaping. You'll have like three shift enclosures, 10 locks. The minute like the maintenance person goes in to clean it out, the monkeys all run to the lock and they start fiddling with it. You know, they know exactly how to get out. There's monkeys that have escaped there 13, 14 times and they find just like wandering around like mm-hmm. they own the place. And, you know, even now there's there's tourists who um, tour groups will come by and monkeys will throw rocks or they'll throw pebbles through it if they don't like the loudness of the tour group or the composition. There's always these acts of agency that really highlight the individuality of these animals. But when they're reduced in certain ways, we don't. Mm. it's not as evident you have to really excavate to find those kind of acts of resistance but i do think that possibly you and pablo here are talking about two different things related but two different things so i think the language of resistance is speaking again to to pushing back against uh, forms of oppression whereas the language of surprise is you can have there's there's an openness to surprise, to starting with surprise versus also possibly resisting all actions that animals are taking as a form of resistance. That's not to say that they're not resisting, um, but that perhaps, and, and I think that this again is a critique that came up several times, is that in, in some animal rights work and in some activism work, there is a tendency to only frame animals' experiences as experience of suffering, experience of resistance, not necessarily experiences of beauty, experiences of pleasure, experiences of awe. Um, and that perhaps in, I mean, and this is not to say that they don't resist. And I think we need to acknowledge, and this came up again in the, the theme of voice and speaking, who gets to speak? Oh, we're speaking on behalf of the voiceless. Not necessarily animals are speaking and they are, they are, like Patrice says, rightfully, you know, every hen is kicking and fighting and biting and resisting. Um, so I think that these are related, but I do think there's something subtly different here, different in, in thinking about how can we be open to surprise and awe, as well as open to 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 resistance and, and that form of agency too. I think um, just to sort of maybe even give more nuance <laughs> to an already nuanced response, um, I think that surprise and awe and and our um, orientation towards being open uh, towards them is, uh, but but the the phenomena or the feeling of surprise and awe only comes through a, a a resistance of the other to our ideas about them, if that makes sense. So I think that there is a beautiful symmetry that Siobhan um, pointed mm-hmm. towards here, and and I think if I can, I won't dwell on this because I myself don't know enough, but um, it's very, um, in terms of ethics, um, Levinasian, where um, uh, Levinas in in very short, in in a very short uh, way of putting it, um, an ethical relationship is one that upholds um, the difference, uh, the infinite difference of the other and doesn't subsume them within the totalizing same, right? Uh, and so uh, when we're speaking of, of of using this this 
honestly terrifying word of just the adverb just meaning only you know oh it's just this it's just that and we reduce it and totalize it we know what it is it's just this it's just a rock that's all it is um that that is in itself an unethical relationship because Mm -hmm. it doesn't uphold as i was saying this in this levinasian uh, way of thinking of ethics this this relationship of infinity and difference well Excuse me. Um, something that Zipporah brought up uh, was uh, for Adorno, this remainder, right? The other. There's always this remainder. There's always this excess of the other that we cannot approximate, right? That's what makes them other. We can't know it. I can't know your experience right now. I just, you can tell me about it, but I can't. It's beyond my horizon of experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so upholding that, not trying to destroy it, but keeping and respecting that this that infinite difference between us is ethics uh, and maybe there are some hardcore levinasians who <laughs> who will you know roast me or something for but that's how i understand uh, levinas's approach to ethics and i think that that is is tying together what Siobhan was saying this uh, symmetry between reduction and, and surprise and awe and being infinitely open uh yeah pablo yes i only wanted to say very briefly that even though I agree with you, Claudia, that there is a um, difference between resistance and the language of surprise. Um, I was also trying to find connections with what Jovan was saying about resistance. Mm-hmm. And I think there is, because in truth, one of the things that people that are doing work on resistance are very attentive to is the fact that animals are individual agents that have the ability and the, and the, that the possibility to resist is open. And they do that, and that we should be surprised by how they resist. There's an element of surprise, and in a way, I think many people would say animals don't really resist, it's just instinct. They mm. are just doing what they do because instinctually they want to survive or something like that. But in order to be able to take resistance seriously, like some people do, like Timothy Pachirat or Tines Wadiwell or uh, Rival or whoever, they, they really, I think, are open to this surprise. It's just that they focus on resistance, and in a way, they they say, look, uh, be surprised by how they resist. Look at what they really do here. These are agents that are saying, I don't want to be here. Uh, I don't want this to be happening to me. I just let me be free in a way. And I think many people, even in some animal studies literature, would not conceive um, that these are political acts, that these beings are saying, "Mm, you cannot treat me like this because I don't want to, or something of the sort. Some people in animal studies would say, no, that's just an instinctual reaction. That's it. So anyways, perhaps I'm repeating myself. But, but that was something that I thought there was a connection between what Siobhan was saying and the uh, surprise, to be open yeah. to be surprised by the resistance of others, something like that. So. That's very, that's well put. Okay, so um, just to rehash again, uh, so some common themes that we've we've seen: relationality, imagination, storytelling, um, storytelling, yeah. meaning, meaning, uh, and related to meaning, beauty, and how uh, to be open to the awe and beauty of of animals' experiences, and to be surprised, and that part of that surprise could very much entail being open to seeing resistance. Uh, and we've also picked up on a variety of tensions as well, the tension between an individual and the various structures, uh, tensions of access, uh, tensions of the extent to which we can actually ever really know, but not using that um, as a reason to not try 
uh, and, and how seeing and sight can possibly enable you to know. Uh, but, but I think being ethical with what that knowledge is. Um, so those are some of the, the, the tensions and themes that have come up. Uh, is there anything when you were listening to season two where you've listened to all nine episodes and you thought something was missing here, something in, in thinking about animals and experience, you really felt that this was something that should have come up in, in a conversation that's as baseline as, as this. That's, I mean, our view thinking about experiences is, is foundational to, to what any project on animal studies should be. It goes without saying that the season was great. And yeah, I, I, I mean, beyond learning so much, I just really enjoyed all the conversations, but, or not, but, uh, in response to the question of uh, maybe something that, uh, that could have been included. Um, I, I mentioned that this sort of, um, the theme, I guess, or, or the topic of meaning, um, was more implicit. It was brought up a few times, but it was more uh, caught up within relationality or discussions of relationality and um, maybe um, something uh, more biosemiotic or, or semiotic, uh, if we can escape the sort of humanism of just saying semiotics, um, would be would, would have been great. Uh, just because I think that experience um, and, and meaning, like we've been saying, go hand in hand. And so maybe a, a focused discussion on, on that uh, with, with a what are they semioticians <laughs> um, uh, uh, would have been would have been appreciated but like I said I think I mean with only nine episodes as well I think it was it was darn near perfect I think for me I would have actually liked more animal stories um, and I think mm -hmm. that this is something uh, Patrice said in the in the ninth episode was everybody spoke about animal suffering and spoke about the systems of oppression um, again like you say about meaning quite quite implicitly but I, I do think that they could have thinking about creativity and beauty, maybe been a, an avenue here to think more creative, creative, creatively, there we go, about how to tell uh, animal stories through, through a podcast. Uh, and perhaps this is something to think as animal studies scholars, how to not abstract the animal stories we're trying to tell in, in getting to these really interesting uh, concepts and tools for thinking through. So even, even in, in today's episode, we've spoken a lot about these concepts. And I think the only person who's actually brought up and actual animals and actual experiences is, is Siobhan, who's, who's spoken about, you know, the capuchin monkeys. So it's sometimes really easy to, um, to suspend who the animals are and what their stories are. Uh, so, so perhaps I think um, that's something for me that was missing is, is maybe finding a more creative avenue to, to tell an animal story or an animal anecdote. I just wanted to say, because it relates to this quite a bit and it's, there is just one thing about time because I thought of bringing animals uh, a lot uh, while we were talking. But for this moment of kind of gaps, there were insects where it might be quite absent, and mm -hmm. also the experiences of insects and who they are. And for this, I thought about an, a case that I use in my thesis a, a story um, that is um, Charles Darwin in I think 1882 or something like that. So he analyzed um, how worm the agencies of worms. And he, what he did was he took 227 leaves from um, worms' burrows, so the tunnels of where worms live. And he did that because by taking the leaves out from the burrows, he could uh, identify how the worms had put the leaves inside the burrows, where they had taken the leaves from. 
So if they have been taken from the base or the middle or the tip of the leaf, the, uh, the leaves would have gone inside in a certain way. So he could find out how, if, whether they did it in a kind of arbitrary way or they made a decision of, I'm going to pick up this leaf from this point and this other leaf from another point. And what he found out was that around 80% or something like that were taken by the tip and that there were around 10% by the middle and 10% from the base. And interestingly, the ones that were taken by the middle were more flexible. So the thing is, worms could, when only with that, you can see that worms could uh, make a judgment in a way about the shape of the leaves. So they could see this deep middle and there is base, and also consistency. And by they, they somehow <laughs> we don't really know how because worms are not have not been studied properly, uh, but they can do that, and. I just think that that type of work that entomologists are doing um, didn't really come to the fore um, that much, I didn't think. And insects are, on a lot, they tend to be obviated quite a bit in animal studies. And yeah, I thought that was one. And then another thing very briefly, by Sonora Taylor, creeping animals as well. So there are so many animals that are not abled animals, even when we were discussing about beauty, and when beauty came up in the episodes, I thought there is also so much beauty in a sort of creeping animals kind of idea that, or creeping animal ethics, as Sonora Taylor's word says. Um, and there are so many animals that due to, I don't know, that, that will come. I, I was also thinking from factory farms that they are, and I think Patrice Jones also mentioned um, that they have a special needs unit in Vine Sanctuary. Uh, which I really appreciate. I thought, oh look, that, that's so fantastic! They have that. It's incredible. Uh, I I just what I just wanted to hear so much more of what he was saying. What happens there? Who they are? Those animals there and uh, the dynamics in the community. But yes, just those two couple of things. I thought, but it was fantastic the whole season and probably in nine episodes. What can one one cannot do everything? But yeah. I, I think you're so right, though, that the, the kind of relationship between disability studies and animal studies is starting to be explored now. And that's mm. possibly a really interesting place for a future for a future season where increasingly people are saying it's speciesism. One day I'll say it right is um, is very much related to to, you know, questions of ableism, you know, that that our cities are the ways in which we've built places have been built with particular bodies in mind. And um, those bodies just also, they they ignore the experiences of a variety of humans, but also of a variety of other animals too. And that uh, a lot of this could also be seen through the lens of ableism. And yeah, certainly I think that this is something uh, I, I don't know enough about myself, uh, but would certainly be interested in learning a, a lot more about. Okay, so we've been speaking for over an hour already. Um, I threw it starting to get there. Um uh, towards the end of every episode, I give people an opportunity to read a quote. Uh, it's one of my favorite parts now of of each uh, episode. It's always surprising. So I'd like to give each of you an opportunity to read a quote uh, from someone that you think like, like sums up or brings to the fore some of the themes from the season. Let's start with you, Siobhan. Okay, so I sort of have, I have a short quote and then a longer quote that's like actually from my field note. So I wanted to highlight the phenomenon of monkeys trespassing the artificial boundaries that we place them within, whether we're doing that in our best interests, such as, you know, fortress style kind of conservation situations, or whether we're just trying to reduce um, 
human wildlife conflict in the interest of monkeys. But this is something that Juno Perinius explores in Decolonizing Extinction, which is a book about her research at orangutan sanctuaries in Indonesia. And it's something I keep going back to because she really verbalizes so well the feelings I had, both as a researcher and participant in sanctuary communities. So she says that decolonizing extinction requires a fundamental reorientation towards others, especially non-human others, in which we accept the risk of living together, even when others' lives pose dangers to our own. And so I wanted to share this quote um, from my own, maybe that's like a little haughty of me to <laughs> quote myself, but I wanted to share this excerpt from my field notes. Um, so I'll just start. At site two lives a temperamental male spider monkey, notorious for throwing tantrums when a tour guide he doesn't like enters the sanctuary. His outbursts, screaming and swinging himself against the fence, are so jarring to the peacefulness of the sanctuary that tour groups will not approach his enclosure if he's not in a good mood. My daily observations of the capuchins place me within sight of his enclosure. While I'm observing, I can see him in my peripheral vision watching me. If I turn towards him, he vocalizes. Feeling emboldened on my last day, I took tentative steps towards his enclosure, mimicking his vocalizations. After about a 10 minutes of so-called talking with him, I felt his tail suddenly wrap around my wrist. The action was so unexpected it made me jolt backwards. I looked down to see his fifth limb retract through the fence between us. I had severed our physical connection while simultaneously I sensed the severing of another unspoken connection. He looked, dare I say, taken aback. And so as not to offend him, I stood there and continued to speak with him. I can't know his intent or reaction to what passed between us at this interface, but his small gesture for contact was incredibly moving. Wow, Siobhan. <laughs> it's like the vulnerability, right, of being in these sort of the, the haphazardness, the liminal space of a sanctuary where, you know, sometimes when night would fall, I'd be like, is that a jaguar in the trees? Like, I'm not protected. They're the ones in the cages, you know, like I got to run. So there's, you're constantly kind of on the edge sort of there, literally and figuratively. And it's dangerous, precarious work, animal rehabilitation. So I really found that Juno's kind of quote about reorientating towards others, accepting kind of your mutual vulnerability to potentially hurt each other, potentially, hopefully create a good community and interspecies relationship is really, it speaks to, yeah, my experience as a researcher. I think that's so important because one of the the big things that came up in this theme, uh, this season was also to think about how we can do this. And I think cognitive ethology, phenomenology, again, these were all tools. And I think writing down these experiences and telling the stories, right? Like you rightfully said, learning how to tell these stories is really an important way of finding that imagination, you know, and, and, and finding meaning, like Josh said, because I just thought there, as you were saying, I could see it. I could see his tail creeping through, wrapping. And there was a story there that, that just helped me. Yeah, that was really powerful. Uh, thank you so much for, for thinking through. I mean, it, it highlighted your experience as a, as a researcher, but also the monkey's experience of, of possibly isolation, of being misunderstood, of wanting to connect. Really great. Thank you. <laughs> Pablo? Yeah. How about you? What's um, your so my quote, I'm going to give a couple of very brief quotes that Sonora Taylor uh, quotes in Beasts of Burden, because then I will then read one by Sonora Taylor herself. Um, so well, just to give a bit of context, um, the quote that I am about to quote is in response to Pita Singer and in relation to disability being creative. 
And so the first quote is by a disabled dancer, artist and poet, Niall Marcus, who says, disability is not a brave struggle or courage in the face of adversity. Disability is an art. It is an ingenious way to live. The second quote is by disability studies scholar, Robert McRua, who asks, what might it mean to welcome the disability to come? And in this context, Sunora Taylor says, these sentiments challenge us to see the sensuality, the unruliness, the beautiful potential of living alternative ways of moving through space and of being in time. Disability can be liberating, exhilarating, a place of freedom from the continual work our society demands of us to be normal. That's their quote. And um, I wanted to give these quotes especially because I just think it's so important in animal studies to value different ways of living and different ways of being. And the connection that there is between critical disability studies and these quotes I was reading and that I think is really strong and again, for me at least, very important. Thinking through like imagination and I think the challenge of the norm. So maybe something else that was implicit throughout, like what is normal, whose views are considered hegemonic, um, whose bodies are viewed as 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 having meaning or not having meaning or value or not having value. Uh, that's super. I really, um, I really need to do more work on, on unpacking and reading some disability studies. I feel as though that's the next because I think animal studies sometimes relies on disability studies or metaphors of disability to make a whole range of arguments without necessarily grappling with the work, the theory, the ideas that are actually emerging out of disability studies, whereas um, Taylor is doing so much of that work, uh, finding these connections, it's, it's super important. And also, if I may, there is sometimes the idea that animals are lacking, that there is something that they do not have and we humans do have. And this happens the same thing with people with especially cognitive disabilities. So the idea that people with cognitive disabilities are lacking something, they are not like the concept of the human, that idea that is rational and so on. And instead of that, I think what people like Sonora Taylor are trying to stress is that we should not see disability as a deprivation, but as mm. a different way of living and being that we should celebrate. And yes. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Josh? So I have uh, a short quote uh, that I think um, from uh, uh, Nasi at the beginning of Being Singular Plural, uh, where Nasi says, there is no meaning if meaning is not shared. And not because there would be an ultimate or first signification that all beings have in common, but because meaning is itself the sharing of being. Um, and so that's the last, um, the last part of that quote, but being, but because meaning is itself the sharing of being, um, I think really, um, uh, really encapsulates, uh, our discussions of meaning and relationality and that, uh, these relations are made up of meaning as far as, uh, uh, maybe Nasi would agree with me. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> so, but I think it's so oh, true. Like, no, no, you're, you're so on the money though. Um, 
I mean, I know you said earlier that you think meaning was implicit throughout, but I think that how do, I actually don't know how to talk about experience without talking about meaning. Like, um, although that said, we do have some experiences that are perhaps not as meaningful, right? Not every experience becomes a like a life, of course, a life point. I don't know what to call it, like a life changing like, moment. Yeah, yeah. Like, not every moment is as memorable or as meaningful, but. Um, yeah, that's really profound. Do you guys have any thoughts on each other's stuff or anything before we we wrap it up? I just think it's so interesting what uh, Yusufan and Joss are doing. I I mean, I would love to know much more about what they are doing. And I, it speaks to my work as well a lot. I think there is a lot of intersections there. And, um, I was already planning to send out an email to everybody to say, can we have like a social hour at some point? and like talk through our research because it seems like all four of us have like these major overlaps that we're approaching from like very different backgrounds but we're like somehow yeah in this same realm now we we were brought here by some force together by claudia the, the fourth of claudia <laughs> i think though that that's so important here as as grad students also think through and listen to realms that we're unfamiliar with, right? Like I'm not a legal scholar, but I found season one really important for thinking through mm. um, animals. And, and here again, experience. I'm not a phenomenal, phenomenal, I'm not a philosopher, but if, if you don't spend some time thinking through these kind of like foundational things, and this is where the, the, the podcast kind of emerged from was, there's so much to know. And like you said at the beginning of the episode, um, Siobhan, you feel like the more you know, the less you know. And I feel like that with all these concepts as well. Yet it's it's really interesting um, mental work as well. Perhaps, I can you tell me one animal story, like a very brief animal story? Because like I said, I don't think we've heard enough about actual animals. An animal in your life. And then with that animal story, I'd like you to also tell me how people can get in touch with you uh, to learn more about the work you're doing. Um, let's start with you, Pablo. <laughs> okay. So um, it, will, it will be a recent one, actually. So I moved into a new house in May. And one of my housemates, she brought with her a dog companion, so, and Max. And he really likes to play with a ball. And I found it fascinating because uh, I approached it in a way that I let him decide pretty much everything. I don't tend to approach him. I make gestures of invitation, but he decides what happens. And one day he took the ball and threw it at me, literally. So we started to play that day. I just kick it with my foot. Um, but what was interesting is that eventually he established, Max, that we were going to play a sort of football game. So the, the, between the kitchen and the corridor, there is the, the floor changes and there is a, a frame of the door. So he literally gets behind the line of the door like the frame and he will not even if i tempt him with the ball to take it he doesn't cross the line so in a way he has decided he only picks the ball when it crosses the door and i just find that incredible in terms of a kind of creating norms and agency and it's just like wow this is just for my work it's amazing and this being this incredible what what, what i just found it extraordinary and um my friend max and i just i love playing with him and yes, and then about uh, to contact me, well, I think there will be a link to my uh, university profile. I think the email there that people will be able to find uh, is mm -hmm. the best way to just contact me through email. And then you're, 
You're on Twitter as well, hey Pablo? Yes, that's correct. Yes, Twitter as well is another way. Um, yes, I would love to just talk with anybody about these things. I, I really like it. And sharing with you and talking with people, I, I love to do that. So yeah, feel free to reach out. <laughs> Great, thank you. I love how Max is establishing rules of the game. It's amazing. <laughs> Siobhan? Oh my gosh, my brain is going through like the Rolodex, uh, that shows my age, <laughs> of different animal experiences that have been meaningful. Um, I think uh, one such was that um, when I first got to my first sanctuary site and I was setting up my, so there was like the capuchin enclosure and then there's on one side of the enclosure is where like the tourists pass through. And luckily for me, I was like kind of on the edge of a river because there's a river running through the enclosure, which is great. And I was set up at the back. So I'm actually like at the back of the enclosure and I can see how the tourists like view the monkeys. And um, the first few days, the, you know, what we would call an ethology is observer effect. The monkeys were like obsessed with what I was up to, what I was doing, what my tablet was. They were like constantly coming to the corner of the cage where I was closest to them and like poking at things, trying to get me, what I assume was trying to get me to help them reach other types of leaves and stuff just outside of the cage. So sometimes I'd like bend a branch and be like, don't tell anyone. Um, but eventually they, especially the alpha, he just stopped what I perceived as like stopped worrying about me or stopped caring about my presence there and finally feeling accepted into the sort of scenery of that and, and feeling like, oh, they rarely even look at me unless I make like an outrageous noise or something like that, which I tried not to do. That acceptance was the start of me starting to see them. I mean, I go in there thinking obviously they're individuals, but where I actually could physically see the differences in the personalities, who was always watching the tourists, who was watching me, you know, um, that acceptance as what I saw it into that community was, you know, so foundational um, to me. So yeah, <laughs> and um, getting in touch with me. So I'm on Instagram as the animal welfareist. And I'm on Twitter as Siobhan Issa. Yeah, excellent. Josh? Um, first of all, I'd just like to say thanks uh, to you, Claudia for nine and 10 now episodes of fantastic uh, listening. And then also to Pablo and Siobhan uh, and Claudia again <laughs> uh, for joining today. It was, uh, this was a lot of fun and um, definitely something that was lacking over the, uh, the last little while. Um, so my story hopefully is exciting. It was very exciting the day it happened and I still look back on it fondly. So I mentioned that I did um, research where I surveyed uh, a two-lane highway looking for roadkill. And I did that through the summer months of two years. And um, during those months, um, turtles would nest in Ontario where I am. Um, so I was lucky enough one day to stumble upon a gravid or pregnant um, female snapping turtle who was uh, building her nest on the side of the road in the gravel. Um, many turtle species, especially snapping turtles, uh, like the, um, the gravel at the side of the road because it's nice and loose and easy to dig through. There aren't a lot of roots. It's very, you know, straightforward. Um, and so I observed her as she dug her nest to lay her eggs, which she did. Um, and it's fascinating. Uh, her back legs dig it out while she sort of sit, is sitting on a hole, essentially, and her back legs just throw out gravel. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it was beautiful. And I tried to keep my distance, but also I wanted to, I, I hesitate to say document, but 
observe and and uh, and remember the moment. So anyway, this was all fascinating, and I was really hesitant to leave her because I didn't want her to venture onto the road afterwards and get hit because you know of course that happens. So I had a field assistant that I needed to pick up. So I get back on my bike and I'm busting my butt to get to my field assistant. And who do I see on the road, crossing the road for the first time in my entire field seasons, but the Blanding's turtle, a threatened species of turtle uh, in Ontario who I, I had never observed alive before. And it went into its shell and I picked it up very carefully and moved it to the side of the road. And I just... Unbelievable. So yeah, that was, it was very exciting <laughs> and how to reach me. Um, hopefully there um, uh, will be a link, but my email is always great. Um, and then also I can be found on Twitter as Josh Daniel Jones. You sound like a movie star. Josh. Da- oh, no, wait, who's that? Who's that actor? Daniel, Daniel Day-Lewis. That's what I'm thinking. I always confuse them. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for your time, guys. Um, It's been a really awesome chat and conversation. And just like that, season two is finished. Yay! Uh, I'm really excited. This has been an awesome season. There were a lot of different concepts and ideas to unpack. My brain feels solidly stretched. I think we had a good amount of both theory and method wrapped up into this season Uh, but most importantly I feel as though I was given some tools from which to maybe better understand and think about animals experiences just another final thank you to Siobhan, Josh and Pablo for spending time with me this evening and talking about all of these different concepts and ideas. I also want to say a big thank you to Animals and Philosophy, Politics, Law and Ethics, Apple for sponsoring this podcast, to Jeremy John for the logo and to Gordon Clark for the wonderful bed music. And on that note, I'll see you in season three. This is The Animal Turn with me, Claudia Hertenfelder. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D dot com. Ah!